But then you look at what Mercedes is telling the press because the press has been asking, so what about liability? And their answer boils down to, and I've seen the exact wording they use, their answer boils down to, oh, yeah, product liability is covered. It's like, wait a minute. That's not actually the question we asked. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, uh, the founder of the Human Driving Association and the co-founder of Johnson & Roy Advisors, the greatest consulting firm in transportation. Am I allowed to say that? I, sure, that? sure. I mean, maybe maybe acts the greatest, but... Well, you know, uh, you, you don't listen to the All In podcast, do you? No. So on that show, Jason Calacanis refers to himself as the world's greatest moderator, and the audience has to know he does. He probably believes that, but I mean, I, if you want to say greatest, Alex, that's fine. But we should move on because we have some important things to get to today. We have a bit of news, but we also have a guest coming today. So I have been, as you know, I'm, I could be super pedantic and like to hear the sound of my own voice, um, and uh, I. I I couldn't help but notice this Mercedes-Benz Level 3 Drive Pilot story floating around the internet. And I saw something on LinkedIn written by everyone's favorite, Professor Philip Koopman from Carnegie Mellon, where he had some thoughts. So today, Koopman's going to join us for uh, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes to discuss his very controversial view. Are you excited to hear what he has to say? I am very excited to hear what he has to say. But first, uh-huh. we should talk about a couple of interesting developments in the world of autonomous vehicles, not advanced driver assistance systems, which is the category that Mercedes falls into. So in the AV world, Cruise continues to make the news. <laughs> and boy, do they. Yeah. Hey, I have a question, Kirsten. When, does Cruise ever just call you up, cold call you and say, we want to talk? I mean, I, I, I'm always reaching out to Cruise. So I, I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I like all of the like all of the AV companies. I'm in fairly regular contact with them, but I've been in more regular contact with them because there have been so many things that keep popping up. Um, so first, there's a, a report that came out, which actually um, I feel is it basically so- shows like in their in their mind like how safe it is mm. um and that's that's all g- fine and good but we're digging into just like how the report came together um does it meet the typical standards um the typical high standards that you would have in some sort of scientific study so i'm not really ready to weigh in on this are oh. you um well i would only say that i welcome any av company a big one that wants to invest the time and money to put together a report explaining why they think they're safe. I think that's a good thing. They should be doing this. Whether this report passes that bar, um, I don't know. Their arguments didn't grab me out of the gate, and I look forward to seeing what you have to say about that. I will say that last week I went in in Scottsdale to the International Association of Transportation Regulators Conference, and I I didn't know what to expect. Um, It was filled with... Uh, state, but primarily city leaders of DOTs and lots of regulators, including people from the New York City T- uh, Tax Limousine Commission. And I was on a panel talking about the current and future state of AVs. 
But before anyone started talking, this crowd was, they were neutral to slightly positive on Waymo, and they were universally uh, negative on Cruz. Why, why is that? It's just, Cruz just, it seems to be, everything they say seems to rug these folks the wrong way. Like, they don't, some of them understand nuance, but many of them don't. And all they hear is, um, and see is, you know, cruise incident, cruise incident, cruise incident, and uh, defensiveness. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm wondering if they'd feel the same way if, you know, we substituted the name cruise and instead it was Waymo or Zooks or Emotional. Um, is it just because they've been having their name in the news so often? Or is it more how the company, in this case, Cruise, has responded to those incidents. Like, what is the rub there? I think it, I think it primarily frequency of negative press, but certainly it doesn't seem like Cruise done themselves any favors, uh, and they got to strike a different tone. And anyway, um, well, that speaking of incidents, there was one that just happened on Monday evening at nine thirty p.m. in San Francisco, um, and. It was interesting to see the news coverage on this initially because as many as many times happens, stories are developing and and with the way social media is, some stuff went up right away that wasn't a complete story. So the complete story is that um, a woman, a pedestrian, was struck by a car that was driven by a human being. She was then thrown over the hood of that vehicle. And in the other lane was a driverless cruise. It it applied the brakes, and so it did slow down. However, it still hit the woman after being struck by a human driver, um, and then was actually underneath the vehicle, which is crazy. I've seen I've seen some pedest or some passers by video of it, um, and the driver, the human driver, drove off. <laughs> so there's a couple of things going on here. Um, obviously, first stories or first sort of like social media posts that went out was, you know, Cruz hits a pedestrian, which is technically accurate, but not accurate in the fact that it didn't hit the pedestrian first. It was, you know, so the optics are really terrible for Cruz. And, um, you know, we'll see how this one goes. Because it clearly wasn't Cruz's fault. Right. Um, but that doesn't always matter um, with any kind of company um, because, you know, really you would think if, if Cruz wasn't involved, there would be an investigation seeking out who this human driver was, which I'm sure that law enforcement is doing right now. But it would there wouldn't be a million news stories about it, right? I mean, the thing here – is that Cruz, I mean, I, we don't have enough information. I'm going to presume that they are not at fault. So it's, is that when, it, is it you, I think you get the benefit of a doubt until you don't. And I think Cruz really needs to rethink their comm strategy because they're not getting the benefit of doubt anymore. And How do you do that though? Because here's the thing. And, and I've told this to other people who say, hey, you guys are picking on Cruise because you write about these incidents and you don't write about, you know, other car crashes involving human drivers. And, and you know, that's 
I, there is local coverage of car crashes. Your site's not called Human Crunch. It's called Tech Crunch. Right. <laughs> right. So we cover crews and, and that's a big reason why. But also, you know, fundamentally news is a surprise. And it's still very surprising for an autonomous vehicle to be on the road and for these incidents to occur, coupled with the fact that our focus is on autonomous vehicles. It's not on, you know, uh, we're not local reporters covering things like crime. Um, and so that's that's the big difference. Um, but it's still very much a novelty and we're still figuring out the the legal and operational constraints of and the business model constraints of autonomous vehicle companies. So it will continue to be in the news. And Cruise has just had has just had its name out there. It, they've become a little too familiar. Well, Let's just put know, it that way. For all the wrong reasons, even if ninety five percent of or ninety nine percent of their rides are seamless, you know, the ones that go wrong are going to be are going to be under the microscope. And at the same time, people are able to very quickly compare them to another company, Waymo, which hasn't had its name in the news much at all lately. Um, I love to see the number of cars they have on the road um, in San Francisco compared to Cruise and sort of, you know, do a back of the envelope, like number crunching on that. But, but right now Waymo's hasn't had any big incidents. And so it's just Cruise's name out there. It, it's not very helpful. for Cruise. No, I mean, you know, you, your tech could be amazing, but if your PR sucks, it's a, like that's the first that's the first thing people encounter. But what's, but what's the solution? Because I don't. I, I mean, I'm not a PR specialist. I kind of take the opposite end of things. Well, you actually are a PR specialist because you're the, you are the receiving end of it from these companies, right? But like, what's what's the what's the approach here? I don't know if there is a right way to deal with this. I mean, probably so, coming out earlier and pointing out that. Uh, human drivers aren't safe. And that statistic, I think, probably did rub some people the wrong way. But uh, w- what would you do? What would you do, Alex, if you were running comms at Cruise right now? What would your strategy be? You know, I was asked that exact question at, uh, at, at a certain conference I attended two weeks ago in Germany. So I, I enjoyed your interview with, with Kyle at uh, TechCrunch, and I was struck by the repetition of a, of a message that many companies have used in the past, but I don't know if it's wise anymore, which is autonomous vehicles have the potential to save X number of lives, you know, 40,000 people killed a year. That is true. I have total faith in technology, but that does not mean that every company working on the technology will be part of that solution. And the ones that win will be the ones that win over the hearts and minds of people, not the, actually the hearts, not the minds. Because any mind that looks at technology would be like, yeah, this should make sense, but our hearts just don't buy it. And so I think they need to go quiet, actually. I think crews should be a lot quieter and they should not say anything publicly unless it's filled with like overwhelmingly high like empathy and EQ. And they come off as just another tech company. Zooks has gone totally quiet and it's probably a wise move right now. But are they going like, totally quiet? Because I mean, I know that Zooks is in, you know, Vegas and they're operating a driverless route in Foster City near their headquarters. 
But there's certainly nowhere near the scale in terms of fleet size or operational design domain as Waymo and Cruise. Are they just quiet because there's not a lot going on right now? Let me ask you this: Do, What is you think? What is the upside of putting more vehicles on on the street of a given city today? Like, I mean, I don't know what I don't know exactly what the milestones are that Cruise has to show um, to anybody, but. I, I would rather have fewer vehicles on the road and more cities uh, with, a, with a handful of vehicles per city and show that as like a metric of success than to pile vehicles in the city and have a high rate of incidents in a city where one is unwelcome. Yeah. I mean, we had this conversation a little bit on stage, but you know, is, is it a San Francisco problem? Is it a cruise problem? Um, you know, San Francisco is an interesting place in which there is a, a very real tension between um, a cultural tension between tech and, you know, other residents there that you just don't have in other cities. So I think that's a huge part of it. Um, but I think part of the reason why, first of all, they're at 50% of their fleet right now. So they don't have all of their cars on the road. Um, I think that putting aside the very distant goals of sort of profitability and things like that, um, it sounds like they're doing sort of a version of what you propose, which is, you know, at least in the other cities, which is not having a ton of vehicles, but going in more cities. Um, but it's such an early stage, it's hard to know how many they're going to. The one issue would be that you can't really accommodate demand with r- such few number of vehicles and that ends up hurting you as well because great there's no incidents but it's not very like it's not wor- it's not very usable and so then you get bad marks because of that i think it's, that's i'd rather have that problem than the problem of people thinking my cars are unsafe for, for sure for sure 100% it just i do think that that's like one issue like it then it becomes more novelty um and like uh, oh let's do this one joyride and never use it actually as a service Right. I'd rather have people endorsing my product than using it and hating it, even if it's fewer people endorsing it. Right. I'll give, I'll give Cruise props for this, like the fact that they showed – did they show an actual wheelchair-accessible vehicle? Yep. So props for that because uh, that was something the regulators at last – the IATR conference were really mad about. They're like, well, who, who's making those? And there was right. no one could point anything except the Cruise thing, which is still years away, but at least they showed it, and that's real. Yeah, they showed that one, and they also are working on a winterized version, which is interesting. It, it certainly shows aspirationally where they want to go, um, which is into colder climates um, and have that option. But that again is two years away of you know being out on public streets. At least they have they'll have friends in some you know city DOTs when they get there. Like fundamentally, um, Cruz needs to have people on the ground like who endorse it or ambassadors for their brand. You know, this is where I'm going to say it. I'll say it every episode. Argo figured that out. And Waymo has kind of figured it out. And Cruise has not figured it out at all. Like, where are the people who love the brand? Like, love it. Who are not Silicon Valley folks? Because that's how city elected officials respond to their constituents. And if the people on the ground aren't saying, we love this thing, they got an issue. And they're losing Well, I do see people saying they love this thing, but um, some of the users – are definitely tweeting about how they love it. And, um, but what you're not getting is 
maybe there's just not a groundswell of support and that's maybe what's missing, at least in San Francisco. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. I I think a good tactic before we move on is, you know, I don't, I'm not saying San Francisco is a lost cause, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I do think that they could, um, definitely learn for what worked and what didn't work in San Francisco and make more of an effort of, and, and actually Kyle, it was interesting because he mentioned this and I was like, Oh, I wonder if this is a direct learning from San Francisco, which is they, he said at least that they're trying to get ahead of any issues when they go to new cities. Now, the question is, what does that look like? Are these education seminars? Are you going into the schools? Are you going into the public library? Are you going into places where, you know, might not be first adopters? Um, I think if they do that, then maybe, they can have some success in some other cities while they deal with the very complex issues in San Francisco, which are a little out of hand right now. I mean, they're, they're, it's not great for them in San Francisco right now. So uh, um, maybe this should have been my initial answer when you asked what I would do differently at Cruz or anywhere else. Community engagement in, for almost, in almost any company, but especially in, in this vertical, the community engagement um, responsibilities are usually subsumed underneath the policy team. And I don't know if, I don't think that's, a, that's wise um, because people in policy generally are traditional thinkers and their job is regulatory capture. Um, and cities aren't stupid and people living in them aren't stupid. Even if they're, they may not be aligned, but they aren't stupid. Community engagement probably needs to be a separate function. Uh, I, whatever's happening over there, they need to do it differently. And cool. I'll leave it at that. All right, let's leave it at that. Um, Next up, a topic I'm super excited about. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I should say before definitions. Yeah, so we are gonna we're gonna talk to uh, Philip Koopman here momentarily, and then Alex, I'm actually gonna see you at the Up Summit. Up Venture Partners? Up- yeah, so we're going to be going to um, the Up Summit in Dallas this year, and it should be interesting. I've been hit hit up by a ton of startups. Me too. Many of whom fall in the aviation sort of category. Um, so it'll be interesting to see and talk to some people, see who shows up this year. Last year was quite interesting, um, and so I'll see you there in a couple days, probably yes. when this episode is released. So well, I'm super excited because – I mean, I'm I'm hanging out. I'm staying actually with um, Ali Javadan, Range Energy, who's been on this show, um, okay. showing off his trailers. Uh, yeah, I love Up Summit because it's <laughs> it's imagine a conference like turned up to eleven. Um, it's yeah, it's very evangelical. If if you're if you're super into startups and if you're super into uh, certainly aviation. Um, of in some way, and also electrification. I mean, drones. I mean, there's a lot of the future of flight. I would say, if you're into those things, like it's definitely the place to be. Um, and there's always interesting characters. Um, not counting Alex. I mean, like Cyrus. <laughs> yeah, usually you're the most like outlandish, eccentric person at an event, but actually, no, not in this case. Cyrus Sigari uh, is definitely. He's one of the biggest characters I've seen in the sector. You know what I super love about it is it actually I used to be, you know, totally skeptical about EV tall and just weird like future aviation stuff. 
but this the up summit actually makes me feel kind of optimistic about it. Like there's something else there. Mm. I don't know if I'm quite there yet, but I it is definitely a, a sector that I find really interesting. Um, and we should probably report more on it. So With let's that. let's move on to um, introducing uh, Philip Koopman and talking about Mercedes and DrivePilot. Let's. Great to see you, um, Dr. Koopman. Is it doctor or professor? Both, but I'll, I'll take either. I go by Phil too. Thank, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. All right. Well, I'm glad to have you. So you wrote something that really um, articulated something I was thinking, but I couldn't really express it, which is, the, you know, Mercedes-Benz has um, announced this quote-unquote level three system, world's first level three system in the United States, I think. And there has been an orgy of media coverage and every single one of these stories says pretty much exactly the same thing. World's first L3 system on U.S. roads. And then there's a kind of like section. Where they do, and then they talk about using it. But there's this missing piece, which which um, I, I we talk about in this show a lot, which is um, what is the handoff? Where is the liability specifically, and what constitutes an actual level three automated driving system? Phil, can you walk us through your LinkedIn post and um, your initial thoughts on this? Sure, we, we'll do the, the the quick version. Then we'll. Di- I know you guys are going to dive in. So the the part on the mumble 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 part of the summary is they all somewhere in the article. So apparently there's an event, and all these journalists got to drive it, which is cool. But somewhere, they all got the idea that if there's a crash, Mercedes has you covered or probably has you covered. and It'll be fine. And, and that's the crux of the matter. And when the car is driving and there's a crash, because eventually what will happen, this technology is not perfect, nor nor should it be, nor is it purported to be, right? But if there's a crash and, and you're busy playing Tetris or watching a movie, uh, is it your fault? And the journalists are all saying, no, 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 Mercedes has it covered. Yeah, but if you ask Mercedes, that isn't really the answer you get from them. And, and so that's sort of where it starts. So let me, let me sort of dive in here. Uh, in a level three vehicle, now, first of all, we've talked about this before. The SA levels are like the wrong basis for regulation, but California's adopted them, so we're going to go with it. That's a whole different conversation. In a level three vehicle, what happens is the car is responsible for the entire dynamic driving task. That includes a thing called the OEDR, Object Event uh, Detection Response. And it's also responsible for letting you know it's your turn to drive. Okay? All right. So that's fine. So level three vehicle, yeah, indeed, you should be able to watch a movie or play Tetris or, or whatever. And the car should let you know when it's your turn to drive. So far, so good. But then you look at what Mercedes is telling the press because the press has been asking, so what about liability? And their answer boils down to, and I've seen the exact wording they use, their answer boils down to, oh, yeah, product liability is covered. It's like, wait a minute. That's not actually the question we asked. The question that needs to be asked is what about tort law and civil and, and criminal law? So tort law and criminal law, and which is different than product liability. We, we can go back and revisit that, but they're completely different things. So people are asking, what about tort and criminal law? And Mercedes is saying, oh, yeah, product liability is all covered. It's like, that's not the question. So I dug even deeper and I found a, a UK manual for DrivePilot, which is the level three feature. 
And the UK manual says, oh, you know, again, paraphrasing of a blog post with the exact words, paraphrasing, uh, yeah, you know what? If something weird happens on the road, you're, you're supposed to notice. Well, how are you supposed to notice if you're watching a movie? And this is where it sort of all gets kind of, kind of weird. That's like, well, you know, you're watching a movie, but you're supposed to notice something on the road. How are you supposed to do that if you're watching the movie? And if there's a crash, who gets blamed? Do you get blamed? And so this is the, the issue. I have a question for Kirsten. You've used this system, haven't you? Yeah, so I, I want to jump in. First of all, uh, neither of you probably read our coverage of it, but um, I did. I did indeed read your coverage. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've been, yeah, I've been, I've been. Well, the reason why I bring it up is because um, I did send uh, uh, Emmy Hall there, and I wasn't able to attend. I have ridden in it, and I wasn't able to be behind the wheel for this latest one. But I've been talking to Mercedes about this level three for a long time. And specifically, I asked them a lot about liability question because it comes up every single solitary time there's a interview. So, you know, tried to cover all the bases in terms of really describing like what that handover event is, which actually I think is a little problematic because it stops in the lane. It doesn't pull over. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a couple of other things. But just backing up a moment, my experience in the drive pilot, which was earlier this year as a passenger, um, nothing of note that went wacky. It operated as it should. Um, we spent quite a bit of time in the car on the freeway um, outside of their research and development center in Sunnyvale. And, you know, it was um, my big question the whole time was around the handover. And how quickly is it anticipated that people should be expected to be able to take over? So uh, a big issue I have is um, when, which we see all the time, especially in California freeways, but in other freeways, it's traffic, traffic, traffic. And then suddenly there's a big opening. And once it hits that speed, you're expected to hand over. So how many seconds is reasonable for a human being to get the haptic alert and the visual alert and the sound alert to then cognitively be able to take over? Um, and I didn't really get a totally straight answer on that. Oh, no straight answers on safety critical is a problem, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it but it did operate like in the you know the time I was in there it operated as was advertised. I think that. You get to an interesting question, though, which is great. It operates as advertised, but what happens a on the handover and b when something happens? And all I've been able to get from them on the liability question falls on the product side. They yes. straight up after a lot of pressing. This was a year ago. This was at CES. We're all press sitting in the room. After a lot of pressing, they said yes, we accept liability if 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 the vehicle does something incorrect. So if the software is at fault of, of any kind, it's not the responsibility of the driver behind the wheel. So that's where it, that's where as that's as clear as they got on that part. Remind me, my friends, cause we've known each other a long time. I recall a study years ago suggesting that the correct um, or the optimal or minimum period of time required from an initial handover alert to actual takeover is something like 40 seconds. 
It, it varies. Yeah. Okay. There's, some, so, there's some, some data, 20, 30, 40, a minute and a half depends who. So, so yeah, okay, but, but, but I'll tell you where, I know where the 10 seconds comes from. The 10 seconds comes from the UNEC 157. I hope I got that number right. I never get it right. Uh, ALKS, Automated Lane Keeping System, which mandates a 10-second handover. And this system is designed to that regulation. So that's that's where the 10 seconds. And 10 seconds is not enough to guarantee it's safe. But I'm okay with 10 seconds being a safe harbor saying, no matter what, you can't blame the driver for 10 seconds. After that, let's have a talk about the circumstances. So if, That's if, okay. if an impact occurs inside of 10 seconds while the person is trying to get ready for their takeover, yeah. in theory, that should be a OEM liability issue. But once I, you cross the 10-second threshold, you haven't taken over. doesn't matter. It's on you. I have, I have a concrete proposal for this, which – was developed in part in response to Mercedes saying they're coming out with this, but it applies Ooh. to everything, is that for 10 seconds after a takeover request, there should be a safe harbor that under no circumstance can the person be blamed. End of discussion. After 10 seconds, you ask, was it reasonable for a reasonable driver in that particular situation to have taken over within the amount of time? And in the U.S. court system does this all the time for human driver car crashes. So it's just invoke that existing process. But so, but that's not actually the problem here. The problem here is they're not taking responsibility for that 10 seconds. That's the problem. That's the problem. Well, I think that my, I guess, prediction, um, it was really hard to get them nailed down on the on even the product liability question. Um, it came up multiple times and I saw multiple numbers of reporters in these roundtable sessions that have occurred over the past year asking that. And I imagine that the same question came up with German press in Germany because that's where it was released first. Um, and they were very careful about how they responded to it and eventually just said, yep, we're going to take responsibility. Um, but again, it was this product side so if the software is at fault, absolutely, we will we will take responsibility for that. And so I think it now comes down to media and others to ask a different question because it was just too general of a question. Are you going to take liability? And so their answer was yes, if the software is at fault. So then it becomes, well, what if, you know, and there's a million different scenarios. And my prediction is that this will end up being settled in the court of law in litigation, and that's how they will get nailed down as to what kind of liability they're going to accept or not. But but it's the wrong fight. Product liability is going to be a real issue here because you have to you end up having to hire somebody to go into a source code room and reverse engineer their neural net at great expense. And and if the thing you just flat out runs into a pedestrian. Why do you need to figure out which line of code or which neural net neuron misfired? I mean, it shouldn't hit the pedestrian. Why, why are we going through all this? And that's why tort law is the right venue for this, not product liability. So by shifting it to product liability, they're creating this tremendous barrier to entry to anyone who wants to say anything. And, and it should be on tort law. So I'm going to attack this from another angle uh, completely, which is that the the poison of the SAE levels <laughs> has poisoned the well of all these discussions. Because fundamentally, if a vehicle, I mean, the word autonomous is used in almost every single review of this car. And I feel like Mercedes is falling into a new version 
of the Tesla like language trap, which is that if the word autonomous is used in conjunction with this feature in every article, except for ours, except for yours, <laughs> but certainly the day very clearly, very clearly, I just want to state that we have a line in here that states it's an advanced driver assistance system and not an autonomous driving system. I so, should have opened anyway. the episode by saying that the only journalist who asked the right questions that I've seen so far is Kirsten Corsa. I'm sure. I'm sure there were others, but I know that we will get annihilated in in on Twitter or wherever else if we <laughs> use the incorrect language. And you know, I even had this discussion just really briefly. Decided to cut you off, Alex. But on the editorial side, is that. Sure, using words like self-driving and autonomous will catch a reader's eye faster, but because it's nuanced, we'll just give up the traffic, um, you know, the readership numbers and be more specific. But but the catch is this is regulated the same as the autonomous vehicles. It is. Most, well, most states have level three, four, and five lumped together in the regulations. And the reason it makes sense, they do it well. Set aside the levels. We already did that, <laughs> even though Alex can't let it go. Uh, but but level three, four, and five, and the reason is when the level three feature is turned on, the driver has no obligation to happen to notice sure. what's going on in the road. Sure. And the Mercedes language is, no, no, no. You know, if our is is you may be hanging out in the breeze. That if something weird happens on the road, you are supposed to notice while you're watching the movie, and it just doesn't make sense. I mean, have you seen though the U.S. handbook? You, you mentioned I'm UK, not. and I'm just wondering if there's a difference in language between the two. My understanding is the U.S. handbook is not released yet, which is why I went to the UK handbook. But but um, you know it's the same feature, right? And there's and now if Mercedes wants to come out and say, look, for the U.S., we're going to have a change in policy, we're going to indemnify you, you're going to do whatever. Yeah, that's great. But Kristen, as you've noticed, and I've talked to other reporters, and they all get the same treatment from Mercedes. They don't want to say anything. They don't want to say anything. It's, oh, yeah, yeah, product liability. We own product liability. Well, guess what? They owned it whether they said they owned it or not. You get, you know, they, and, and the issue is if their computer driver behaves in a way that a human driver would be negligent doing they should own that and they're leaving room. They're opening up a loophole to blame the human driver if they want to. Now, they may say, we're not going to do that because we're Mercedes, but but lawyers don't leave open loopholes for no reason, right? Look, I think we all know the reality here is that if the human operator in the seat has any liability for anything that occurs while that system is on and has not received no less than, less than, no less than 10 seconds warning to take over, this thing can, should not be defined as self-driving or autonomous in any way. Well, and it shouldn't be level three because that no, that not. cannot that cannot fit the definition of level three. If if the human is responsible for monitoring the road, they're not doing they're doing part of the OEDR, so it's not level three. And if the human driver is responsible for monitoring the operational design domain, like oh, there's a thunderstorm, we don't drive in thunderstorms. But if the human, but level three, it's required to only operate in the ODD, and you don't delegate that to a human either. So, so is maybe the the, the the original sin of the of SAE should have been to define the automation levels solely by um, tort liability. Well, well, or put it another way, the 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 levels aren't useful for tort liability, right? But, <laughs> but I mean, so level two and three. So here's the insight: level two and three are a matter of degree and not of kind. And that's the problem with the SAE levels. They're both. There's a human driver who has a role. There's a computer driver who has a role. And and it's all shades of gray, and that 
you know, that's okay as long as everyone understands. But the thing that's missing that really matters for all this is there's a thing called the duty of care. So you can only be negligent if you have a duty of care, not a lawyer that's oversimplified, right? But to be, to be negligent, you have to have a duty of care and then you don't fulfill the duty of care. Right now, there's no way to really know when the car has the duty of care and the driver has the duty of care. And what you're saying about the handoff from a, from a liability legal point of view, it's the handoff of the duty of care that matters, which may or may not correspond to the technical task handoff, right? So, so uh, for these systems, I would say as soon as you press the go button and the vehicle accepts the go button, because it might just say, I'm not going to turn on, right? They have, they have that choice. As soon as it accepts the go button, the, you need a legal fiction called a computer driver, uh, but it's the manufacturer who holds the duty of – who holds the responsibility for the computer driver's behavior because it's not a person that can't own property. You can't sue a computer, right? Uh, not yet anyway. So, so when you press the button, the computer driver assumes the duty of care with the manufacturer the responsible party. And then it holds the duty of care until that 10-second handoff is elapsed when it turns off. Maybe it decides to turn off. Maybe you decide to turn it off. It holds the duty of care for 10 seconds. And maybe longer, depending on the circumstances, we ask the jury what they think. So if you have that, that cleans up all this um, non-product tort law liability because now there's an unambiguous statement of who's holding the ball when. And without that, it's just a mess. Kirsten? Yep. So there is one other interesting wrinkle that I haven't seen the language of the user agreement, so I'd have to see. But this came up in the recent ruling. Um with the Tesla arbitration case in how um, autopilot FSD was used. Um, If the user agreement between Mercedes and the driver has forced arbitration, that also confuses the issue. It's a separate issue, but it's also could, could complicate things even more because it will never go to court then (laughs) um, if it's a forced arbitration issue. So I'm, Forced arbitration has been widely used in the tech industry, and I'm uh, curious to see how many automakers now, um, as they are rolling out um, advanced driver assistance systems that are either hands-off, eyes-off, or hands-off, eyes-off, in the case of Mercedes, what those user agreements are and if they've added arbitration in there. Yeah, that'd be that's an important question. Enforced arbitration is uh, uniformly bad for consumers. Arbitration itself may be okay, but only if the consumer opts in after the loss has occurred, not being forced in. I think we're on the same page there. Yeah, for sure. Yep. So I just think that's another, you know, a little bit separate. But as this starts to play out, because I'm sure we there will be an incident at some point where there is a crash in which this question then has to be resolved. Um, and we won't have the transparency or clarity if the user agreement has forced arbitration. So anyone listening who ends up getting a user agreement, please take a screenshot because I'd like to see the legal language around that. Yeah, I agree. But, but getting back to the, the real issue here, the real issue is whether or not the driver is stuck with some responsibility after they hit the go button. And forced arbitration just delays us finding out how that's really going. And, and now, now there's a there's a choice being made here. The Mercedes Drive Pilot might be a perfectly reasonable, perfectly safe in practice system, but it's not level three. So they have a choice. If they want to call it level three, then they can't expect the user to be paying attention. 
if they want the user to pay attention and are transparent and clear and the user understands their obligations, you know, fine, but it's, it's not level three. I mean, you, you don't get to have it both ways. That's the issue. And by the way, I wouldn't be watching a movie if I weren't dri- if I were driving a level two plus. That's a really bad idea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no. Well, you know, <laughs> according to Roy's razor, unless you can literally get out of the seat and fall asleep in the back, there is no self-driving or autonomy function. Well, thank you so much for clarifying that. Okay, my pleasure. <laughs> Anything else you'd like to share with us today, Professor? Uh, I, I think that in general there should be an alternative to the levels for regulations. uh, The levels should be taken out of all regulations and they need something else. I have a proposal. Other folks have a proposal, but it's a conversation we need to reopen. I think that's really important. And I think the Mercedes level three situation just really puts a big spotlight on on how problematic this is. And it's no longer theoretical. We're staring right at it. We need to get that fixed. And and I think the uh, regulation via equipment is going to be tough. Expecting NHTSA to fix, fix, fix this anytime soon, that's just not going to happen, right? So the, the interesting part is if you have this uh, duty of care definition, then you can use that to put pressure on the industry in the correct direction of safety. It won't get you all the way to safe, but it's a small tweak to existing court law that doesn't break a lot of stuff. But at least if the manufacturers are held accountable for the safety outcomes, there's pressure of them to do better. Uh, as opposed to what we have now, which is there's really no equipment regulations to speak of other than the odd recall. Uh, the manufacturers are able to sidestep liability and put to product liability, which is super expensive and painful to pursue. You know, basically, they can do whatever they want. And unless it's a robo-taxi with no driver in it for all the other in-between cases, They'll just blame the driver, and so far they've been getting away with it. So if we want that situation to improve, we're going to have to adjust the tort law system. Well, thanks. Thank you for joining us, and um, thank you to our audience for listening to another episode of The Atonicast.